These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Spring Branch, we speak more than 145 different languages, and that diversity translates into a thriving economy. Our district's a melting pot. It's a great place to find the staff you need. Spring Branch is working for business. Yours. Find out more at spmd.org. Hi, and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places, it's all here. I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. And I'm Marissa Leck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. And today we have a very special very guest, special. Emily Foxhall. <laughs> Emily is the Houston Chronicle's environment reporter. And I can't say how many times I've read one of your stories and gone, that would be a great episode of Looped In, because I think real estate and the environment are so intertwined. But recently, Emily has had some personal news that made us realize we needed to have her on before she would become much harder to book. Uh, she's accepted a job covering energy for the nonprofit newsroom, the Texas Tribune. Congrats. Thank you. And I've said this before, but you know, I'm going to be sad you're no longer in the Chronicles newsroom because I love your presence, but I'm very glad you'll still be reporting out in Houston because, you know, we need... Just really good journalists dedicated to this area. Congratulations. And we wanted you to come on to talk about some of our favorite stories. But first, do you want to just talk a little bit about yourself and how you came to cover the environment and now energy? Sure. Um, I just hit my seven-year mark at the Chronicle, which is wow. pretty crazy to me. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've been on the environment beat just about two years. So I first covered Fort Bend County, um, which I didn't know a whole lot about, but quickly learned was a very fast growing and very diverse community. And then I had a job called Texas Storyteller where I roamed around this state. Yeah, the coolest name for a beat. Um, it was a dream beat. Um, I grew up in Houston and I was like, I understand Houston. And then you realize <laughs> once you start delving into water quality and air quality, how much you have to learn. So it's really been in honor, which sounds kind of cheesy, but I've, I've really loved being able to write these stories for this place that I'm from. Yeah. And I feel like there's so many aspects to environment, but one thing is just like, there's a lot of communities who have been complaining about health concerns of their environment for a long time, and it's been hard for them to be heard. So sort of like learning about that, learning how to report on that, you know, I guess the story that comes to mind is uh, the creosote story where People were saying that they all knew someone with cancer. And I feel like if I were new to the beat, I would, I would be thinking, you know, like, how do I take all these anecdotes? Basically find out how to write about it, like how, how to approach it and how to bring attention to things. One of the big stories that you reported on extensively in the past year or two 
has been what was happening in the Fifth Ward around the Union Pacific Rail uh, property and and the the creosote treatment of these rail ties. You had mentioned that the residue on the side of a telephone pole is like the creosote treatment. Where is this community? Why were they using this substance at the time anyways for this? So Fifth Ward is a historically Black community near downtown Houston. Uh, And it's well known among people here. Uh, It has a lot of cultural history. This site is kind of in the middle of the community. Like there's homes across the street from the rail yard. Union Pacific was treating rail ties there for decades, starting in the early 1900s. So people have stories of like their grandparents remembering the treatment going on. If you go there now, it's just an empty paved over parking lot, but there's people who still have stories about when it was operating. And the purpose of using this creosote, they would put the rail ties into these cylinders and highly pressurize them to get the water out of the wood and then to like pump this creosote in. And it's a, it's a wood preservative. Um, it just helps the wood last longer so it doesn't decay and um, it just makes everything a little bit safer for the rail operations and um, helps the wood last longer. But uh, creosote's considered a likely carcinogen by the EPA and it's just like generally pretty nasty stuff. People at the time just didn't know that, but there are stories people have told me about running around the rail yard as kids and a lot of families just didn't have a whole lot of extra income. So one person was telling me how when their dogs would get like mangy, they would just dunk the dog into the creosote because it would kill, you know, it killed things. There was one year when some of the like waste uh, seems to have caught on fire, you know, so there's kind of like these points in people's collective memory of like knowing that this is a dangerous substance But it wasn't until really recently when the state actually did a cancer cluster study that people drew this connection between the people that they had lost over the years and this facility that was, in some cases, just down at the end of the road. I think I remember in some of your reporting, uh, you had mentioned like everyone kind of knew someone that had passed away from cancer, but there wasn't really a connection made to the environment that they were living in, right? It was just like, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but was it just seen as kind of like, that's just life random? Like, did people have a sense that there could potentially be that connection to the environment that they're living in? Yeah, I think it would depend on who you talk to. Um, Sandra Edwards is somebody I've quoted in a lot of stories who's one of the big activists, and she lives on Lavender Street, which just runs right into where the operations used to be. Um, And she can like walk you down the block and point to the houses and say, here's so-and-so who died and such, you know, like she knows all the family names and can tell you. Yeah. So it's, it's a very powerful thing. And I think for a long Mm -hmm. time, she just felt like nobody believed her. And even now they're still having to fight so hard to get this cleaned up. They're finally getting a little bit of traction from the county and the city and a nonprofit group that are threatening to sue the company. Um, So I think there may be some change that comes out of that. But uh, I I think just like the prevailing idea has been that nobody believed them when they said something 
was wrong. What what does that mean? Like, what did the study show? That's when state health researchers go out and do like a survey of the community. So they look at a set time period and they look at specific types of cancer. And then it's just a statistical analysis where they compare the number of cancer cases they find um, in specific areas with the average that they expect in Texas. Um, So in the case of Fifth Ward, there were some uh, childhood leukemia and some adult cancers that they just found in a higher prevalence. But like, it's a big deal when they find a cancer cluster and it really Mm -hmm. validates, um, I think for people like Sandra and other people who live there that like something was going on in Fifth Ward that wasn't normal. You had a scoop a few Mm -hmm. months ago, I remember that was referring to, it wasn't just creosote, right? It wasn't there other substances that they that is now believed to potentially have contributed to these health risks too yeah it's sort of like the further along I get in this the more there is to to learn um but there was a document that was shared with me that showed the waste was from super fun sites that these are some of the most horribly polluted sites in the country before they were declared super fun sites some of that waste was mixed in with the creosote and called creosote extender. So it's sort of like this toxic sludge. What is happening now then with the cleanup plan? Because I know that you've written, there's been like various proposals and then it was paused. And then, you know, is there actually lawsuits? What's what's kind of happening now with, with both the proposed cleanup plan and, and the lawsuits? Mm-hmm. I think the interesting piece of this when we're talking about real estate is like, what's the solution for people here? Um, yeah. Because buyouts have been on the table. You know, Mayor Turner has suggested that that could be an option for this community. But as you all know, um, just like picking up and moving somewhere else is not the same as living in this place where some people have lived for generations. Um, so that's what they're looking at now. The Union Pacific has been um, putting forward a plan for cleaning it up that is now stalled at the state while these negotiations go on around the potential lawsuit. And the aim of that is just to come up with a cleanup plan that everybody can get behind. So I think that's what everyone who lives there will be watching for is what's the proposal for cleaning it up and is that going to get the risk low enough that people there uh, feel comfortable staying. Do you know how many homes or, or residents are impacted? Or, or I don't know. It's a good question. The mayor has mentioned they've got like a several phase buyout plan. So it would be looking at like the homes closest to it and then a little further out and a little further out. But part of this is people have been calling for like a more intensive look at the extent of the contamination so Mm. um the creosote basically sunk into the ground but it also got into the groundwater so mapping how far that plume of water goes i think some people want to see a little more data on um and now that we know there could be all these other chemicals that were spilled it could be that they go back and test for different substances than they have in the past I don't know if anyone's done research into how this has affected the home values and the property values. And as we've discussed on this podcast before, homeownership is a really important way that people establish generational wealth. 
And, you know, if this is, if the, their home value is destroyed, then that, you know, really impacts their ability to, to create that wealth, pass that on to their family members. So I don't know if you've looked at how it has affected values, or if you've talked to anyone about that. Yeah, I would love for you guys to analyze it. We should. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've talked to them more about the buyout, like, a lot of people own their homes. And so the thought of starting over on payments for a new house is really daunting to people. And I think that will continue to be a part of the conversation. There's a whole separate lawsuit on, on damages, but it's like this question of how do you make people whole? That's just a lot more complicated than when you first look at it on the surface. I went and met with Sandra and some other activists in her home, which is still damaged from Harvey. She hasn't been able to fix it up. And they were talking about like, if this happened in River Oaks, it would have been fixed by now, you know? So there's still this sense of racism is at play and how they're being treated today in terms of, you know, just the lack of urgency and getting it cleaned up as they perceive it. I guess like out of curiosity, I mean, when you interviewed residents, when did they first like realize how bad the contamination was? When people bought their houses, did they, was it disclosed? I mean, did anyone even know to disclose the p- contamination? I would be curious. So the city found dioxin in a sample of soil. Dioxin can be a dangerous chemical. So they decided to pass out these flyers with information from the city health department and from the EPA about actions you could take to just be sure you were staying safe. So it was like, take your shoes off before you come inside or dust them off and don't let your kids roll around in the dirt. So I I went with them when they were passing out these flyers and some people, we knocked on the door and they just looked like totally bewildered. Like they had no idea about the creosote contamination. And it's kind of scary to have someone knock on your door and be like, this chemical called dioxin could be in your yard. (laughs) This one guy had, I think he was in his seventies and he'd lived there for a while. And so he sort of had this attitude of like, whatever, I'm already contaminated if I'm contaminated, you know? But he also had some anger about these new townhomes that had been built down the street. And it just made me wonder, like, if people who are buying this new development know about what they're moving into, you know? On this in- idea of environmental justice, it's not its not just this creosote site. I mean, this is crazy to say, but, like, that's not the only environmental contamination people in Fifth Ward are facing. Mm. They also have like concrete batch plants where they pour the materials for concrete into trucks and um, they're fighting the I-45 expansion. And these all both impact the air, right? Like the concrete dust gets in the air and then all the trucks release particulates and it can cause asthma. Sometimes I'm calling people over there like, every other week to talk about some different (laughs) issue. And I think that's just really important for people in Houston to understand that for some communities like Fifth Ward, um, they're fighting on multiple fronts. Um, and And again, a lot of that ties back to how the city was developed and, and where these companies found like cheaper land to start. I feel like this ties in with just the patterns of development in Houston is um, the whole issue around the sinking of the land in the woodlands. And I know it's not just the woodlands, but I think that's what you had focused on. Mm. Not only low-income neighborhoods are being impacted by the environment. We, we interviewed someone 
who had bought a house and then um, like literally had seen it, had witnessed it visually um, change the, the elevation of the house or the sinking. Um, but I guess for listeners who may not be familiar, could, could you talk about like what is happening in the woodlands, like with the ground sinking and, and, um, and why is it sinking? Cause it's another, what we just talked about in fifth ward is like a human caused <laughs> environmental problem. This is another human caused environmental problem in a very different part of town. Could you just review for listeners, like what exactly is kind of happening, you know, in Montgomery County? I, I think, um, it actually used to be a big problem here. And so, so the ground sinking is known as subsidence is like the fancy term for it. And it happened in this area because too much water was taken from underground. So that could have been for drinking water purposes or for industrial purposes. And there's this one community that famously like literally sunk into the bay. Oh, was that in Galveston? Not in Galveston, but along, along Galveston Bay you can find these pictures where it's just like the whole subdivision sunk into the water. Oh my God. So Harris County, you know, Galveston and Harris County realized that was a problem and formed a subsidence district. And they came up with this whole plan for how to slowly transition the area over years to using more surface water. So now in the city of Houston, um, you know, as we've been thinking about and talking about since we had this boil water notice, but a lot of our water is what's called surface water. So it comes from lakes like Lake Livingston or Lake Conroe. And that has helped slow subsidence significantly in Harris County and in Galveston. But that was like a very intentional, very long-term planning effort that's still underway. It's still underway. Yeah. Houston's still working on developing more drinking water resources. So in Montgomery County, when, you know, you've seen more and more people moving there, there's been more and more demand for water. And for a long time, they were getting all of their water from underground, but they also have a subsidence district. And I don't want to lose people with how wonky this is, but basically it's like this separate government entity that's in charge of overseeing like the water resources for Montgomery County. So so I'm going to tell a long story very quickly, which is that a, a group that was in that district decided to do what Harris County did, which is invest money um, or find a way to finance building a giant water treatment plant, which is now up on Lake Conroe, and start treating surface water so that increasingly people in the county aren't pulling water from underground. And they also had a long-term transition plan. But in a twist, there was a big shift in who was elected to those positions. And there was a lot of like background politics in this. If you really want to delve into it more, you should go read the stories. But um, basically a new board took over and they have changed gears on how, on how much water they think is okay to use from underground. So that has really heightened concerns Mm. from people in the woodlands who are experiencing subsidence the most significantly. So this groundwater district has said it's studying subsidence and it's aware of the issue and monitoring the issue, but people in the woodlands are, uh, there are some who are really not happy with how it's being 
managed or not managed. The idea is that all the groundwater that's being used is making this sinking problem worse. I was confused about whether it sounded like they were on a path to use more surface water there and then they kind of went back. Right. (laughs) I don't know how much y'all want to get into this, but I can explain it. Subsidence happens, like you said, Marissa, because water gets pulled up from underground. If too much gets pulled up before rainwater can replace it, like can filter back down, the earth will literally compact. So like the earth will sink. And that's not reversible. So once subsidence happens, even if a big rain comes and fills back in underneath, it's not going to like push the earth up. So that's one thing to keep in mind that like once it subsides, that has happened. You'd have to like pile dirt on top of your property to fix that. The politics behind it, there is a big water utility up there in Montgomery County. and. One of the people who runs it became very interested in this election and in how the people on the subsidence board were making the switch over to surface water. So he was part of a PAC that funded this whole slate of new candidates who ended up winning. But why was he interested? Like, because when... I guess, like, the most basic way to explain this is surface water is more expensive. Like, using groundwater... That's really what you should say. Using groundwater is cheap. You just have to pull it up from underground, like add a little treatment to it and it's ready to go. But surface water is like, when you look at Lake Conroe, you're not going to scoop a glass of water out of Lake Conroe. There's a lot of steps that have to be done and operating this plant is expensive. So um, I think some people felt like that was premature, like um, that they didn't need to spend this money and they didn't, water bills went up as a result of this. So um, it was it was kind of like a financial mm. versus conservation argument. So you have this community that's rapidly growing and they're trying to figure out how to get all these new residents more water at, without significantly raising their, their water bills. So I guess what is happening with that now? Is it just like they're going to keep pumping groundwater and it's just going to keep sinking? Yeah, I think if you ask people at the district, they say they're managing it responsibly and keeping an eye on subsidence there. But there's various, you know, elections that will be coming up that I think people there will be paying attention to. There's also like regional management groups I've been following kind of as they go along. We we did this story with this guy who realized after a lot of research that his home was on a literal fault line. So subsidence was an extra problem for him because it was worse he found on on the like tectonic fault line. So he had had to like add um, steps to get to his house. Like you can go out and kind of like see these places where there's like a literal difference in the earth. So I think as more time goes by and people start to like actually witness the subsidence like this person has... I'm sure there will be more conversation around it. Well, I think this goes back to, this is like another way that people could accidentally, you know, what we were saying, um, buy a house without realizing there's an environmental concern and then have it impact their property value years later. Yeah, if it cracks your foundation, you know. This part of Houston is growing so much and people are buying houses, like, do they know? And I saw this study 
from University of Houston talking about how it's not just the woodlands. The Houston area is experiencing subsidence of up to two centimeters a year in the west, northwest, and north of downtown due to excessive groundwater withdrawal. So I think this is an issue that could potentially impact more than just the woodlands. I mean, the other thing to remember is there's this term for sea level rise, relative sea level rise, where you know people along the coast are really worried about water rising, but it's both the ground sinking and the water rising that is going to cause problems going forward. So um, true. So all of these, yeah, it, it just has implications for flooding that are really going to matter as climate change barrels ahead. I I feel like that you might need to go, but I feel like that's a segue into the Ike Dike. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Just real quickly, real quickly, what's 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 going on with Ike Dike and when is it when will we actually start to see the plan take shape? Yeah, I think one of the other things I've learned, my understanding of environmental justice has really impacted me as a reporter and what you said like buying a house where you don't know the ground is sinking, like there's so many things about the world around us that I think it's our job as reporters to try to convey because it has such vast implications. But flooding is, you know, I was here to cover Hurricane Harvey mm-hmm. and I've covered several other storms, but you just realize after witnessing people lose so much how vulnerable we are as a community. And so the Ike Dike um, is a project I've looked a lot at. And this proposal to build giant stormwater tunnels under the city is also one I've looked a lot at. And there are these two big, they call it gray infrastructure, you know, just like very traditional engineering, solid engineering projects um, that the Army Corps of Engineers is looking at to help alleviate, the Ike Dike would alleviate storm surge flooding. So like when a literal wall of water gets pushed up with a hurricane and the tunnels would help with really heavy and intense rainfall. But both of these are like, you know, the Ike Dike I think is up to 31 billion, 32 billion. Um, And the tunnels are similarly expensive. So they're huge projects that somebody has to pay for and they would take many, many, many years. So uh, I've just been following those pretty closely because it's like on the one hand, you know, this community is so vulnerable. On the other hand, you can never really beat mother nature forever. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's sort of like this existential question facing mm-hmm. the city is what do we want to pay for, for what level of risk and what level of harm to our environment? So that's another big one to follow. Yeah. I, I wanted to do a, a, a lightning round. Okay. Okay. Not looking for a full-blown story. It's just like a sentence or a word. Okay. So, lightning round. I feel like you've gone so many crazy places. What's the craziest place you found yourself while reporting? Mm, I once was on an airboat with some people whose property had flooded in Chambers County, and they were trying to save their zebra after a flood. What's your favorite memory at the Chronicle? Oh, gosh. Uh, I've just been telling people this isn't a memory, but I've just felt like people I work with are like my family. And that's a really special way to feel um, about your coworkers when you're leaving a place. Coffee or tea? Tea, definitely tea. Me too. (laughs) Okay, favorite Houston restaurant? Um, Pepper Twins I had last night. It's been very stressful leaving a job. So Pepper Twins is like my comfort food. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to miss you so much. Yeah. I'm going to miss you guys. Thanks for doing it. Emily, could you share with listeners how they could still get in touch with you wherever you are? (laughs) Yes. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at E-M, like M, Foxhall. And I think my DMs are open, so you can always reach me there. And thank you, listeners. If you ever want to send an idea for a podcast or just say hi, you can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. I'm at R-A Shoots. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. And And I'm at Marissa Lex 7 And on our show notes, if you go to HoustonChronicle.com slash looped in, we'll have our links to some of our favorite Emily stories. Thanks to our print editors, Gabby Banks and Rob Gavin. Scott Kingsley is our producer. Thanks to Farrell Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos, for the theme music. Until next time.